go to the Lord together in prayer. Father in heaven, we want to acknowledge your, <clears throat> that your name is holy and to give you your place. Lord, even, even for ourselves to step aside, I pray, Lord, that in any way that we have um, our focus off some, in some way this morning, that you would bring us to center now. I pray anything that's distracting us, Anything that's become an insistent thought in our mind that's trying to keep us from being here right now, I pray in Jesus' name that the power of it would be broken and that we would be free in Jesus' name to listen and to think and to pray and to consider and to, and to let your word penetrate our hearts. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be the one, as it says in Revelation, who walks among the seven churches, that you'd be in this room ministering to every heart, that you would touch each person, that you would move, Lord, and that you would challenge us, God, and that you would, <clears throat> that you would be the one who delivers the word directly to the heart. And we ask that it would be planted there and covered over and patted down and watered, and that the Son of God, the Son of the, of the light of the countenance of the Lord would warm the soil and that it would be rained, Lord, rained upon, would receive the rain from heaven, and that it would spring up, Lord, and that it would be protected and kept as it grows, Lord. And every, every piece of it, Lord, would be watched over by you until it produces a crop, Lord, fruit for the one who sowed it, 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. And we pray, Lord, that we would be transformed by your word and made into the likeness of the Son of God in new ways, because we were here today. So we commit this time to you and ask in Jesus' name that it would be made fruitful by the Spirit of God. In his name we pray, amen. <clears throat> so I, we're uh, starting a new series, as my wife mentioned a moment ago, in, on consecration. And we, in the church, when, when whoever, is, whoever is preaching, and I thank God we have such good people and people who listen to the Spirit, and people who, um, who bring the word faithfully in this church. Um, we really do try to bring, like, I think the term that I like to use is fresh bread. When you see the, the priests, what every day they had to replace the bread, and it was the bread of the presence, the bread of the presence of God. You, were, they weren't, they, you couldn't say, well, that bread's still good, let's just leave it out. Every single day they had to replace the bread with fresh bread. And so just to give you an example of how this works for us on our side of, of considering and praying over what God would have us share with the church, um, you know, I, sometimes I have prepared a message and for some reason or another, you know, we, maybe we had one of those rare snow days where service was canceled. A lot of the time you go to revisit that message the next week and it's not fresh anymore. You look at it and go, I, well, I don't know if we, what was supposed to happen there, but it doesn't seem right for this week. It's not the bread of heaven for this moment, for right now. And I'm saying all this because I want to say that I, I have a, just a tremendous confidence in my spirit that what we're going through in this series right now is fresh bread from heaven for our church. And when you consider what God has said about himself, we're using the word consecration, and I'm intentionally not using the word holiness. And that's just because in one, I don't want to have to constantly overcome some of the baggage that comes with the term holiness. Holiness is a proper word. It's totally appropriate. It's God's word. 
Um, but consecration is a word, I think, that makes us think about the concept in a new way. But God said of himself, or he said to us, he said, you be holy for I am holy, for the Lord your God is holy. He identifies himself as a holy God. And holy is a word that means set apart. And set apart in the, in the sense of being altogether different. So to say that God is holy is to say that he is altogether different. There is no one like him. And that's core to, to even the songs of worship and the things that we celebrate in, uh, and, med- and meditate on about God. It's that he is not like any other. And uh, if you put God, you put our God up against any other God, there is no comparison. No comparison. Every other God is a little g God because there is only one true God and he is altogether different. He's not like, like a little higher. He's infinitely higher and he's altogether different. And so when the holy God calls a holy people, he calls people to himself and he calls his people to be consecrated, to be set apart to him, he calls us to share in his nature. And in calling us to share in his nature, he calls us to be altogether different from the world that we live in. But let me say this, it's different in the best possible way. And so what causes people to steer away, I think, from holiness is one, you've seen people do some weird stuff and call it holy. Anybody? And maybe I, if, I don't know how, I don't know what everybody's experiences encompass, but there have been holiness movements where the women were told you can't wear makeup, you can't wear jewelry, you have to wear ankle length dresses, they ha- your hair has to be a certain length. In fact, you can't cut it, the Bible says. They say these kind of things. And, and, say, and if you can get all these externals right, then, that's, then that'll be holiness for you. And to the men, you know, you've got your own set, much less rigid, of course, but you've got your own set of externals. You must cut your hair, you know, and there's, there's things that you can wear and not wear, and there's all this stuff. But anyway, it's all superficial. It's all about the external presentation and, and to say that's holiness. Well, guess what? That, that's, a, that's paper thin, and it wears out really fast. And what happens is when you put holiness on such, such a superficial level, then it brings God down. If God says he's holy, but this is what holiness means for me is my clothes and my hair. Well, it brings God down and suddenly there's, well, guess what? These, these places who, who focus on this and call it holiness end up splitting. They end up having infighting and turmoil and all this stuff because guess what? They made non-essentials essential and they misdefined critical things and all that. And that's just one example. Another concept of holiness would be monasticism. The, monk, the monks you know, and Martin Luther wrote about this extensively because he was a monk pursuing holiness through the monastic system, which was isolation, self-deprecation, deprivation. You know, you, you, you're fasting all the time. You're breaking yourself down. You're hating your flesh. Martin Luther wrote about how when he was fighting against sin, he, would, <clears throat> he was struggling with a temptation and he's in his house and he's just, he's on his knees and he's crying out to God and he's like, and he's like in such turmoil and he can't seem to overcome temptation. So he throws open the door to his house in the dead of winter and he runs out in just bare basic clothing and throws his body into a snowbank and just lays in the snow till he's freezing and he's just punishing his flesh and trying to overcome sin. You understand? And so you see what I mean? It's this intense struggle to overcome sin 
But the, the monastic movement was the whole idea of, you know, to bring the flesh down and, and separate yourself from all that is unclean, and you will find holiness in that way. And Martin Luther said, wisely, his, the insights that he had were incredible, but he said, he, said, I, he said, I left all the world to become a monk. He said, but we, he said, but God, when he revealed Jesus to me, called me out of monasticism. He called me out of being a monk. And I had to leave behind the last thing that I still had. And that was my religious self. So, so he went into this place. He went into solitude and all this to find, what, to find out what it meant to be holy. And when he got there, his heart was the same. And no matter how much he punished his flesh, his heart was the same. But then when God revealed Jesus to him, he was a changed man. And God said, now you've got to leave this false concept of holiness, and I'm going to let my son be formed in you, and you're going to find out what holiness really is. So in a few weeks, we're going to, I'm going to do a message in this series called The Holiness of Jesus. Because that's one of my favorite ones. Because, because if, you, if Jesus is the, is the image of the invisible God, then how Jesus lived is holiness. So you, and you notice Jesus' life, and he's like unbelievably free. Not bound up, not legalistic, unbelievably free. Sometimes he keeps the rules, sometimes he breaks them because he must. But he's free. And he, he's free to do the will of his Father in heaven. And when you define holiness as how Jesus lived, that's, that's the manifestation of holiness in, in, in our lives. We can learn some things from, from how he lived, how his heart was oriented toward his Father. Anyway, we'll get to that. But today, I wanted to uh, tantalize you with an enticing title, Sabbaths, Temples, and Piercings, Pictures of the Consecrated Life. Um, so I want, to talk, I want to talk about what consecration actually is, and then I want to show you some pictures of it from Scripture, because that makes it vivid and tangible for us to understand what God is really striving, what God desires for us. So let's start here, Isaiah 13, 3 and 4. <clears throat> God said, I have commanded my consecrated ones. Oh, thank you. At some point this morning, I'll spill this. Just letting you know. <clears throat> I have called, I have even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exulting ones, to execute my anger. A sound of tumult on the mountains, like that of many people. A sound of the uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. And even though the context of this verse, this passage, is God stirring up armies to bring his own, to bring actually his judgment against his people while they were in sin, the principle of consecration comes through. God's consecrated ones are his chosen army, whom he has called with a holy calling to be his alone. And if you wanted to take it a step further, to be his alone and to carry out his well, you could say his judgments, but to carry out his will and to do his work in the earth. So I want, what I want to show you here is that there are two sides to consecration. First of all, there's this that I've shown you here, which is that God has chosen ones, called and set apart for himself, and we are called for him and to him to do his will in the earth. But to be his, 
But then if we go to Lamentations 4, 7, we find the other side of consecration. And Lamentations 4, 7 says, speaking of the, the daughters of God's people, it says, her consecrated ones were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than corals. Their polishing was like lapis lazuli, which is some kind of a precious stone. <clears throat> so in this, we find the second side of consecration. First, God sets apart a people for himself to belong to him and to be his only. But then God's consecrated ones are those who have heard the call of God and prepared and purified themselves. So it's two sides to it. God is the initiator of everything. So God sets apart people for himself. You've heard of the Lamb's book of life. The way you and I came into salvation was that God set apart a people for himself. But consecration is when you and I hear the call of God, the call to live and to live a certain way, to be his alone, to surrender our hearts to him. And we accept the terms that God lays out. And we say, not only have you said, I am yours alone, I am surrendering myself to you and saying, I will be yours alone. And so can you see that there can be a wall up right there? Because you can be saved by trusting in Jesus for salvation. You can be saved by putting your hope and your faith in him. But you and I, we only have so much light. There's only so much that we can see. And so God, he, he saves us, but the work is not finished at salvation. There's a whole life to be lived that we call it, we call it um, sanctification. And sanctification is that process of being transformed into the image and into the likeness of the Son of God. So we can be saved and we surrender whatever we know at salvation. God will put his finger on a few specific things. And at that same time, and we, we say we repent of our sins. We trust in Jesus for salvation. His spirit comes in and there's a whole new life. And glory to God, it is a new life. And it's beautiful and it's bright. But then as time progresses, a lot of the time what happens is we'll kind of, it seems like we're losing zeal or, 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 thing, or something seems to be changing where we're having a hard time having, having the same kind of experience with God as what we had at the first. And God allows this to happen because he wants us to stop for a moment and to say, oh, well, maybe my initial salvation wasn't everything. Maybe there's another step. Maybe there's another phase. Maybe there's more to know of God. Maybe there's a greater revelation of him. And so we begin to seek God again in a new way and say, Lord, what else is there? What else would you show me? I want to know Jesus. He stirs us. He shows us. Lord, I want to put away sin. And God begins to show you things, things you couldn't have called sin a month ago. Couldn't have, because you did not have that clarity. And suddenly the light of God comes in and you go, ooh, Lord, is it really that ugly? And he says, yeah, it's that ugly. Well, I've been holding on to that for quite some time. Why are you just telling me about it now? Like, well, you couldn't have handled it before. We were working on this, don't you remember? And that was even uglier than this. So by degrees, he gives revelation. <clears throat> and every time we surrender ourselves to him fully, we are consecrating ourselves to him and even renewing our consecration. 
So God lets us know that he has chosen us, that he has a plan and work for us to do, and then he sets forth the terms. And here are the terms for consecration. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, do you hear the word anyone? These are the terms because they're the terms for anyone. They're the terms for everyone who will come after him. You want to be a disciple of Jesus? You know, you've seen the crowd, what the crowd looks like when you, in the Bible when you read the stories, you know. Where do you want to be? You want to be way back here? You want to be up here in the middle somewhere? You want to be right up there where you can actually bump shoulders with Jesus and, and watch the miracle happen with your own eyes? But do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? You want to follow him? Anyone, if anyone will come after me, he said, he must deny himself. You, you want to identify your mortal enemy? There's your mortal enemy. Himself. Every man's self, every woman's self is your mortal enemy because yourself is a, an ally to the devil in all of his works and everything that he wants for your life. The self is in full agreement with that which would destroy us. And the self is, in fact, what Christ went to the cross to destroy the power of, the power of sin. Because the self-life is entirely controlled by sin. And so all the hyphenated sins, self this, self that, self dash this, whatever it is, if you can hyphenate it with self in front of it, it belongs to the self-life. And those are the things Jesus went to the cross to destroy the power of. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. That's turn your back on the self-life. And say, that's not who I am anymore. I will not live for that. I don't care how much enticement you set before me. I'm turning my back on that. I will not live for myself. And then an action besides that action is to take up his own cross daily and follow me. So if you want to know what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, this is it. If you want to bump shoulders with Jesus and see the miracle with your own eyes, this is how. If you want to know what it, what it means to have a new glory in your spiritual life, this is the road. And any time I take up the self-life again and lay down the cross, I will go into a spiritual slump, into a place where everything goes cold and dark and all of heaven goes quiet. And I say, where's the glory? Where are the glory of the former days? And he comes to the church. I think it was, was it Laodicea or one of them? And he says, repent and do the deeds you did at first. Remember how it was at first when I first saved you? There was nothing too precious, but you'd lay it down. And you remember when I said, turn your back on this, you turned your back on it. And when I said, take this up, you took it up and you didn't ask questions or fight with me. But lately you've had a lot of questions and a lot of fighting. You've been disputing my word as it comes to you. So don't wonder why our relationship has changed. Because he, we'll get there, but he's, he is only, God is always himself and he never changes. So if we're going to have a relationship with him, we are going to be on the changing side. That's what you have to understand. It's like, God, you give a little and I'll give a little. Well, he gives, he gave everything. He already gave everything. 
So don't ask him to give a little something else and you'll consider. No, he'll just point you to the cross and say, give more than this. Everything you need for life and godliness, his divine power has already granted to you. So he will always point at the cross. But this is the way. So when we stop resisting his will and accept his terms, that is the beginning of consecration. A new life in Jesus begins. It's good for us to do little exercises sometimes and sit down and think and say, fill in the blank. If God asked me to give up, fill in the blank, I would really struggle to do it. If God asked me to give up, fill in the blank. I would really struggle to do it. And when you, whatever you put in that blank, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It might be a good thing, and God may never ask you to give it up. But he wants everything on the altar, including that thing. To where you say, even if you asked me to give this up, I would do it. That's consecration. Self-life says, You can have everything but this thing. This is my precious thing. And when you put something in that untouchable category and tell God he can't touch it, you have made an idol. You have fashioned an image of gold. And you have said, I bow down and worship here. And I need you to be okay with that. But God, he's he's in that same tough spot of being unchanging and holy and jealous and a consuming fire. You wonder how God supports his jealousy. He sets on fire the things that you love more than him. And so, he's not going to change. We're going to have to do the changing. And if you can figure out what's in that blank over there and find out whether or not you've built a glass case around it and told God he's got to be good with it and you're not going to put it on the optional, if you'd, even if, Lord, you called me, called this, took this from my life or whatever, or even if I had to have this struggle forever or whatever it is, you know, whatever it is that you put in that blank, <clears throat> if you can identify it, then you are on the grounds of consecration where you can begin to say, because what he wants you to do is in your heart to let it go, to trust him with everything and let him give back to you all that is good and best. So we put everything into his hands, you know? You think about this with money in church, it's like the the tithe. We say, well, the tithe belongs to the Lord. Well, in consecration, when when God really gets to my heart, 100% is God's. And the tithe I give is a matter of stewardship and obedience. And whatever he sends into my life, I recognize it all belongs to him. And it's not like, this is mine, and that's yours, God. It's, no, I give this in stewardship, and I, and I manage this in stewardship. But it's all yours. It's a different way of living, but it's living in reality because he is a Lord, and he can't help it. And he wouldn't help it if he could, because it's just right for him to be the Lord. Listen to 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are, the chi- we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Someone say amen to that. There is more that he's going to do in us. He's not done. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. He'll finish the transformation at that time. 
because we will see him just as he is. But listen to these words. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him does what? Purifies himself just as he is pure. And purity is a holiness word. Purity is a consecration word. I want to walk in white garments, unstained by the flesh, unstained by the world. Purity. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him does, does this, purifies himself just as he is pure. It's the purity of preparation. We saw that verse just a little bit ago that um, her consecrated ones were purer than snow. What is this? These are the virgin's daughters of Israel preparing themselves for their, for their husband, for the bridegroom. And they had prepared themselves in every possible way and said, I will be pure for him. And that is the essence of consecration. Because I have this hope fixed on him, I'm going to see him someday and he's going to finish the work. While I'm waiting, I'm purifying myself. Pushing out of my life everything I know is not of God and not pleasing to him. And praying for and drawing in everything I know that is good. And blesses his heart. Saved and consecrated, this is important to understand. Saved and consecrated to God are not the same thing. Many are blessed with salvation, but do not know consecration. And they might not know it for a variety of reasons. It's not just stubbornness. Some people are stubborn. And they just don't want to cooperate with God. They don't want to change. But some people don't know because they just didn't hear it, just haven't been told. Some people don't know because they, the, whoever is their example in life doesn't demonstrate it doesn't challenge them in it, so they just live however, how they live a common sense life after salvation. And if your common sense life is submitted to the Holy Spirit, that can become consecration. But if we don't know, we don't know. So I want to show you just some kind of distinctives between those who are living, you know, just, just as saved and those who are living a consecrated life. When I'm first saved, I know Jesus as Savior. But in consecration, Jesus is revealing himself as Lord. So, and it's not that you couldn't know anything of his lordship at salvation. Very often we do. But how many know your consecration is not finished at salvation? And so he does a work in you. And of course, there's a putting away of sin. And then there's a welcoming of holy things. Of the, uh, how about the Holy Spirit, right? You're receiving a spirit whose name is spirit of holiness, So he's going to bring a lot of holy things with him that are good and right and and blessed in the eyes of God and man. You'll be so thankful. Who's glad that God gave them a holy joy at salvation? Who's glad he gave you a holy peace? You know, go through all the fruits of the Spirit and just look. Who's glad you got some self-control? Because, Lord, we know we needed that one. We couldn't stop ourselves from running headlong into sin. We could know the punishment was coming and we'd just run right into it just like the same 10 times before. And the Holy Spirit came and gave us holy self-control and everything was changed. So Jesus is revealing himself as a Lord in consecration. Lord is someone who is in absolute authority and control, undisputed. Whatever he says goes. 
And in this case, you're talking about a Lord who knows you better than you know yourself in every possible way and is never wrong and cannot make a mistake. You know, like parents try to guide their kids in the way that they should go, in the best way that they know how. But we got to leave a little room, don't we, parents, that sometimes we just plain miss it. God doesn't have that window of, whoops, I guess I missed it. He doesn't have that. So anything he speaks to you about, you can just go ahead and settle it. He is absolutely 100% right. God's assessment of your heart is the right assessment of your heart, not yours. I think I'm a pretty decent guy. And the Lord says, after he chokes a little, oh, okay. A little revelation then. Let's turn on the lights in this dark room. You know, and suddenly he opens up the, cap- the capacity for evil in the human heart and makes you look at it head on and say, I could do anything that has been done in history when it comes to sin. I could, but for the grace of God. And that's the glory of the gospel. We're not who we were, praise God. But he has to show us that Jesus is revealing himself as Lord. When I am saved, I will go to heaven after I die. That's beautiful and amazing news, isn't it? That you have an eternal salvation and he has prepared a place for you. But after consecration, heaven becomes the atmosphere of my daily life. So what makes so so there are people who you'll meet and they have like kind of a cultural Christianity. A religious, it would be the equivalent of country music Christianity. No offense. If you like country music, no offense. I'm just saying it's, it's kind of exemplified in that world. You know, it's like that song. These guys are brilliant songwriters. I'll give them that. It's like John Cougar, John Deere, John 316. <laughs> what do you need to have a perfect understanding of the world? John Cougar, John Deere, and John 316. <clears throat> so, so you, but you can see that in that, in that, there's this idea of like, I'm saved, I went down to the altar, was saved, and someday I'll be in heaven, and that's the whole picture. But that's not, con- that's not a consecrated life. I'm saved for a purpose. What's the purpose? So I have an interactive, everyday, abiding relationship with Jesus to find out what it's all for. Some of it's just to know him. He loves for you to know him. But there is a world of people around you he wants your life to impact. Light and salt and a city on a hill. These are not for you. These are for them. And so this holiness thing, you watch, holiness movements get very inward. But not a Jesus-centered holiness movement. Not Jesus-centered consecration. Because when he's changed you inside, the outward manifestation is for the glory of God. And you're not going to be able to be me and my private faith. You're not going to be able to live that way anymore. I'm just letting you know up ahead. Because some of you would put in that blank. As long, if God were to ask me to share my faith, it, it would be very difficult for me. Well, guess what? He's got his red dot sight right on your greatest fear of acting in righteousness. So consecration is put even your fear on the altar. 
Why can't you? So you have a fear you can't overcome? Well, then why are you keeping it? Give it up. Put it on the altar. Sacrifice it to me. And watch if I don't make you as bold as a lion. Because the scripture says, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion because of the spirit of the righteous. And you all get the same spirit. God has not given you a what? Spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And he gives the same spirit to all. So if I have fear that keeps me from obeying him, that fear needs to go on the altar so his spirit can be free to operate through me. And his spirit is as bold as a lion. So it's less of me and more of Jesus. Does that make sense? Consecration is you lose yourself. You sacrifice. You give up the self-life because there's a greater reward. And that's the manifest life of Jesus in you and through you. And he gets to make the call how he manifests his life through you. But it's better that he doesn't. So heaven is heaven because God is there. And so the question is, am I content just to have a God in heaven? Or do I want heaven in my everyday? Do I want God to be here right now? Do I want to know what it is to walk with him in sweet fellowship every day? Because a consecrated life, that's, that's what you receive from the consecration. You give up the self-life and you have a tangible, sweet fellowship with Jesus and you walk with him every day. And I'm not trying to paint you a fairy tale picture like you never have dark times, you never have you know, seasons of valleys and shadows and all this. You have, you have the whole picture. But in, in a consecrated life, you have a different experience of God hands down. Different experience of prayer, different experience of worship. This is your engagement with him. Everything changes. You come up from the earthly realms and you live a little bit in the heavenlies. And that's where he's calling us to live, to live, walk by the spirit, the Bible says, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How do you conquer the desires of the flesh that are so strong and compulsive? Well, you walk by the spirit. You're going to have to leave this realm and walk in this realm. In order to do that, you've got to lay down all the baggage that keeps you stuck in this realm. Because you've got to rise to a higher plane. And that's consecration. When I'm saved, I realize that Jesus took the cross for me. In consecration, I take up my own cross and follow Jesus. So there's a, there was an old song that said, Should Jesus take the cross alone and all the world go free? And then the song says, no, there's a cross for you, my friend, and there's a cross for me. And in consecration, I'm saying, hold up. It isn't right that Jesus should suffer. I should share in his sufferings. What's my part to carry? What what does it look like for me? Jesus talked about that with his disciples before he went to the cross. They treated me like this. How do you think they're going to treat you? You're going to try to get everybody to like you? Because that's an option. All the false prophets were treated that way. They were spoken well of by all men. Are you going to speak my word in truth and take what comes? Some people will love you and others will hate you. Or is, or is being disliked by people what you wrote in the blank? If God asked me to live a life where I was criticized and humiliated and made to feel ashamed... I would have a very hard time accepting that. So we have to identify what's in that blank over there. 
and really make sure we haven't built walls around it. When I'm first saved, I may have a secular life alongside a Christian life. In consecration, I give all my life to Jesus. Because Jesus, while you try to have secular life, it's like, here's all the stuff that doesn't really glorify God, but I like it. And here's the, here are the things that, or, or specifically things God has said no to, that I said, yeah, but I want it anyway. Or this is harmless, God, can't you understand? And God says, not harmless, harmful. And you said, no, but I like it. So you kept these things. But you said, but I will have this, and I'll read my Bible, and I'll have this, and I'll go to church, and I'll have my Christian life over here. And all the time, you were telling yourself, I keep that over here, and see, it doesn't, it doesn't dirty my Christian life. And all the time, Jesus was standing over your life going, there is no wall. You thought they were in separate compartments. There is no wall. It's all in one compartment, and that's your spirit. And if you're disobeying the word of God and allowing things he would not allow, inviting things that are not good, you know, then those things are dirtying your spirit and making it hard for you to have communion and fellowship with God. And so God puts his finger on specific things and says, this has to go. If you want the glory, you've got to make room for it. So these things have to be pushed out because I'm a jealous God, a consuming fire, and I want all your life to be holy. And so the lines are not simple on these things. It gets frustrating for us because it's not like God says, okay, you can't, you can't listen to any of this secular music and you have to listen to Michael W. Smith. <laughs> I mean, I would just say, take me now. That's what I would say. I'm ready to go. Um, he, but, but you could listen to one song, and it's not a Christian song, but God says there's something in that for you. And you listen to a Christian song, and God goes, I don't ever want that kind of Christianity in your life. So the lines are not like, say, Christian music, the fish is good, and B98.5 is bad. B98.5 is bad, I'll just say that. <laughs> but if it's even still around, I don't even know what the radio stations are. But, um, but, but anyway, I want to talk about the fish. Okay. The fish is great. Okay. But you can't just, you, the lines are not clear. But if Jesus says no, you have to agree with him. And you've got to be listening and you've got to put everything on the altar. If I'm just using this simple example of music, it's like he might say fine to one song or a movie and say, that's fine. Shut your eyes during that part. But other than that, it's fine. And you think, well, Jesus would never say that. I don't know. I mean, there's been some movies that have really tra been transformational for me where I had to skip a couple scenes. And I'm just saying that. And, and I don't, my conscience is clear about watching it. Because I skipped a couple scenes. Because Jesus says to skip them. You understand what I mean? The whole life is submitted to him. And you're very cautious about, you don't want to touch sin and just see if maybe I won't get infected by it. I'll be the one. I'll be the special case. Because you have a predisposition to latch on to sin and for it to dominate your life. That's the nature of sin that is dying. And depending on how much you feed it, it has a certain measure of strength. But feed that spirit and the spirit overcomes, overcomes, overcomes. And he finishes off the flesh when he appears. 
And he told, however you say it, and it's all the life of the Spirit after that. The struggle will be over, praise God. But until then, we engage the struggle. In consecration, I give all my life to Jesus, and I just acknowledge that there is no wall. I am one spirit, and whatever I pour into it goes into the mix. So I don't let everything into my life, through my eyes, my ears. I don't let just anything in. I have to test the spirit of everything and come out on his side. When I'm first saved, I may dictate to God and resist the Holy Spirit. This is talking about your prayer life. You may dictate to God. Talk, talk to God about this, that, and the other thing. And then when he tries to talk to you, you resist the Holy Spirit. <laughs> this, is the, this is us in immaturity trying to learn how, how to, to follow him. And we stumble and we struggle. In consecration, the cry of my heart has been purified to a couple of main themes. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening, and here I am, send me. So, so my heart has changed. I realize it's more important what I hear, in so many ways, more important what I hear when I'm praying than what I say, or that I receive guidance that he, that he, that he speaks into my spirit and rejuvenates my soul. I'm gonna pray about things. I'm gonna lift up my voice to God. Um, but I need to hear from him. It's just as important at least. And here I am, send me, is simply the understanding that, that what you receive from God is not an end in itself. You, we have to have an open, our spirits being open to God taking what he's poured in and giving us somewhere to pour it out. <clears throat> so the central theme in all this of consecration is Surrender. Consecration means I am done fighting with God. So whatever you fill in the blank on, that thing I talked to you about a moment ago, that's where the struggle is. Maybe you have 10 things. Maybe, you need to, maybe you've got nothing, but you know there must be something you need to get quiet with God and ask him. I want to challenge you to do this as we go through this series. Take some time and ask him, what do I protect? What have I built walls around in my life? What have I said no to you without even consciously saying no? In what areas am I resisting the Holy Spirit? Is there anything that's more precious to me than you in walking in righteousness? Is there anything? And if we can get to the bottom on those things and get them on the altar of God, it is the beginning of consecration and a new life in Jesus. So I want to show you an, um, a couple or three illustrations of consecration from the scriptures, and I'll try to do this quickly for the sake of time. The first one is the Sabbath, or Sabbaths. <clears throat> and this is what the scripture says in Exodus thirty-one thirteen. But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, you shall surely observe my Sabbaths, God says. For this is a sign between me and you, Throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So he says, You will observe my Sabbaths, and you don't miss my Sabbaths, don't skip them. Because, and I'm not commanding you, by the way, right now, that you got to keep all the Old Testament feasts and rules and all, and all the, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this is what God said to them at that time. But notice that he said, that if they did it and kept them through their generations, there'd be a revelation in it. That you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. 
So God says, in keeping the Sabbaths, you're going to learn something about me. That just in the very same way you set apart a certain day, you set apart a week, you set apart the seventh year, that's the same way that I set you apart. And God is saying, that's the lesson, that's the message that's hidden in the Sabbaths is that I am a God who doesn't sanctify days as an end in itself, but to sanctify people. I set you apart. His ultimate desire was not sanctified days, but sanctified people. Consecration makes my life a day among days, separate and different from all the others. So on the Sabbath day, there were rules that you kept for that, for that day. Those rules did not apply to the other six days of the week. But they were the rules for the Sabbath. And in the very same way, when you ask God, you tell God you want to live a consecrated life and follow Jesus, he'll say, I'm going to give you parameters for your life that don't apply to anybody else. Can you accept those terms? All the other six days are doing this. But you're holy, you're, you're holy to the Lord. With you, I said no. But my Christian friends are all, did you say I could have control of your life or not? These are the parameters for you. You are holy to me. And convictions ebb and flow. Convictions come and go. Convictions are for a time and they change. They shift. God wants to release you into more and more liberty. That's his heart for you. But at the beginning of consecration, he's just gonna, he tightens up the reins a little bit and says, I'm just going to teach you to obey me without asking any questions. So I'm going to say some things to you, and you're going to go, are you even serious? And I'll hear it in your heart. So you might as well just say it. And then you say, okay. You guys, I, read, I, don't, I don't have much time to go into this, but um, Reese Howell's Intercessor, if you can get your hands on that book, you should read it once or twice. But Reese Howells um, was a guy who had called, was called with a specific calling to intercession, very unique, and you, you read all the different things. Well, his life, God was just revealing to him over and over the different ways he wanted him to live, and God put this guy, you know, you read it, I'm just being fair, honest, he just put him through the ringer, it felt like. Well, way back then, there was, uh, was this late 1800s, maybe, um, he, he, uh, everybody in town, all the men wore a top hat, every man. And if you didn't have one, it was the same idea as being like bald. I mean, it was like, it was like whoa, was like, where's his hair kind of a thing. If you didn't have a hat on, you know, that was the way that they saw it in society. Well, he's going into town to meet with some important people and all this, and he's doing this ministry work, and he's making connections and getting to know people and all this. Well, so, well God tells him, you may not wear a hat in London. And he says, I, everybody wears a hat in London, and he says, well, you're not going to, you can't wear a hat in London. And, and he, re, he wrestled with God. You and I, like, we're, we don't have a lot of context for this. It's not, because there's not a lot of things I could point to in modern society and say everybody does. I mean, you could pick something. But anyway, he gets off the train and he has no hat on. And the guy picks him up and he goes, oh, Mr. Howells, you've left your hat on the train. And the guy says, um, actually, I didn't. I'm under express orders from the Lord not to wear a hat while in London. Well, now the guy who's hosting him is also embarrassed. So now his conviction is impacting somebody else. Everywhere he goes, where, oh, Mr. Howells, where's your hat? Everywhere. 
And over and over, he's having to say, I'm under orders from the Lord not to wear a hat. And, he did, and what's the reason? It's like, what did you do? What, well, look at what God's treatment of the prophets. I'm just going to keep you very humble. You're going to have to get over the idea of pleasing people. You're going to have to get over it fast. And that's just one example. But suppose you and I could find a comparable to that in modern society. And would that, would that go in the blank for you? If I was embarrassed... I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to be singled out as the one who's different. Put that in the blank. And then we, so we build a box around it and say, I'm never going to be that person because I don't like the way it makes me feel. And God does these kind of things. That's just one example. But your life is a Sabbath to the Lord in sanctification. Next, the temple. First, first Kings 8. <clears throat> Then Solomon assembled, this is a longer passage, we'll just go straight through it. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' households of the sons of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is in Zion. All the people of Israel assembled themselves to King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Interestingly, this is the month Ethanim, I looked this up. Is the, it says it's the seventh month, but it, the name of Ethanim uh, means living waters or living springs. It's, it's the month of living springs. It was actually the same time that the waters were at flood stage. And so they, the, all the crops got watered in the month of Ethanim. And this happens to be the same month. They have like three of the most significant Jewish uh, feast celebrations, holidays, all in this month, you know. But this is the time, living waters, you understand, Living waters was Jesus' picture for the Holy Spirit being given. <clears throat> it says, Then all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. They brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and the holy utensils, which were in the tent, and the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled to him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen they could not be counted or numbered. A massive sacrifice. But they're dedicating the temple of God. That's the context of what's happening here. And the idea of to sacrifice so much that it can't be counted is, the, is Solomon saying to God, there is nothing too precious that I won't give it up for you. We're going to just keep on sacrificing. <clears throat> In verse 6, and the priest brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place. So they're bringing up the Ark now. Remember, they didn't have a home for it until now, a permanent home. Into the inner sanctuary of the house, to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark, and the cherubim made a covering over the Ark and its poles from above. So these two cherubim, whose wings were stretched out, and in the middle their wings met over the ark, which was the seat, which is the top of the ark was called the mercy seat. But the poles, listen to this, little hidden pictures of Jesus. But the poles were so long that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside and they are there to this day. So the poles that they carried the ark were so, with were so long, they stuck out under the bottom of the curtain. And they had to be, because you couldn't go into the most holy place. The poles are like a picture of Jesus. The poles can touch the ark, and you can touch the poles. That you couldn't, you couldn't pick up the ark, you couldn't go in there, but he can go in there. Same idea as the high priest. Anyway, there's all these little pictures. There was nothing in the ark, 
except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, they've set the ark, which was, a, which was the totally the symbol of God's presence. The cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. It's like, priests have important work to do, right? They've got to do the ministry of God. But look what's happened. The, the priests cannot minister because the glory of the Lord is so thick. And I want to just say to you, that's the dream. That, that you say, well, Pastor Joel prepared a sermon, but then the glory of the Lord came and he couldn't bring it. I don't say that too, too proudly. It's like, yeah, that's right. That's what we've been praying for. <laughs> but it is what we've been praying for. You know, when you hear these stories of revival and the preacher gets up to preach and five minutes in, the glory of God is just, just impacting people. And guess what? Message is over. But, but that's the point, right? You bring the word of God, you invite the presence of God, and when God comes, it's his service. Well, you want him to be his all the time. But that's the desire. But in the scriptures in, uh, in Hebrews, it says, Jesus was faithful as a son over all God's house, over his temple, whose house we are. We are now the temple. And so if you take that picture and you see, what did they do? They gave up everything. They consecrated, dedicated everything that they had. And he filled it with his glory. So there's no consecration without the indwelling presence of God. So they bring the ark in. That's you and I receiving the Holy Spirit. But once he's there, we dedicate all we have and he consecrates us by the outpouring of his glory. That's the picture. You are his house. He says, if you hold steadfastly to the hope you had from the first. So, is there anything too, so precious you wouldn't sacrifice it? Well, that's what's hindering the glory now. But if you want your life to be filled with the glory, then you put everything on the altar. And when all has been sacrificed and the presence of God is here, then the glory will come and fill the house. And that's why I said you live on a different plane in consecration. Because you can dedicate, but you can't consecrate in the purest sense. You dedicate all that you have. You just do an obedience to the Lord, but he does the ultimate work of consecration, which is him filling your life with his glory. And the glory was separate from the presence. Do you see that? There was the ark that was the symbol of his presence, but when the glory came, the cloud was thick. It was tangible. It, was, it had a displacing effect. It ran them out of the temple because the cloud of the glory of the Lord was there. And we want to have a life that is, doesn't, where we don't just know what it is to be saved and to have the spirit only. We want to have a life that is also filled with the glory of God. And that comes through consecration. So very often new seasons of consecration are marked with fresh fillings with the Holy Spirit. And that's just God taking us from glory to glory. So, and if you've been having a sense that you need to be filled in a fresh way with the Holy Spirit... And I'll be, to be honest with you guys, I need this, these messages too. I'm preaching them to me while I'm preaching them to you because it's just time. It's time for me. I need a new season in the spirit myself. 
and I'm praying over this, but God very often in new seasons of consecration brings fresh fillings of the spirit. And you could say which came first, the chicken or the egg, because sometimes the spirit comes in and all of a sudden the things that had a hold on you, they just don't have any power anymore. The spirit comes and all your ideals have been realigned and you, and all of a sudden your heart wants what God's heart wants. And isn't that the perfect picture? Last of all, the pierced ear. Exodus 21, 1 through 6. Now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you six years. But on the seventh, he shall go out seventh. That's a Sabbath. He shall go out as a free man without payment. He's already served you. He doesn't owe you anything. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, listen to these words, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. So can you see just the, the simplicity and purity of, of the gospel and also of a consecrated life in this picture? That he says, I love my master. I will not go out as a free man. I will serve him permanently. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. And if you look those words up in the Greek, which I have done, because I was curious to know if God was really that reckless in making us free, it means free, absolutely free. Free to go whichever way and to do whatever thing. That the, the words are ut, utmost liberty. Free to go anywhere, free to do anything. But then he comes to the question, But then you realize you've been set free and you're headed off into this liberty. But then do you stop for a second and look over your shoulder back at the one who set you free and say, hold on a second. Why would I leave him? I love my master. Do you love your master? Then present your ear to the piercing all and be marked as his for life. This is the call to consecration, to give yourself. You could go free. You could leave town. You could go do whatever. But you're saying, no, I'm staying with him. He's been good to me, and I'm going to serve him for all my life. I will not use my liberty to do what I want, but I will live to serve him forever. So let's stand to our feet. This is a lot, and I'm, I'm not calling you to the altar today. If you want to come to the altar, the altar is always open. But I'm inviting you to agree with God that you'll go down this journey and that we'll all take the same path together. That's what I'm inviting us to because I'm re- I recognize that when God begins to deal with us about ourself and our flesh life, there are things that we love that are in our life that God hates. 
And that's a pretty wide differential. And it has to be healed by the Holy Spirit. And we have to do business with God, so to speak. We need it. There are transactions. It's almost a transactional relationship that we begin to have with God where we go, okay, so I think you're telling me that this is a concern, all right? And I'm struggling with it. I'll admit it. I'm struggling, but I don't want to hold anything back from you. So will you give me grace to let it go? Will you give me grace to put that on the altar? And you begin to release things to God. And these things don't often happen in a moment. They can, but they don't often happen in a moment. Sometimes my own will is so stubborn and strong, and I've got to fight through into the place that I can release it into his hands. So I'm not inviting you necessarily to come and say, today, full consecration. If you're ready to do that, praise God, then do that. But I'm inviting you to take this path and take this journey. And let's do this together over the next several weeks. And let's just see each piece. And let's just, let's lay a little down at a time as God reveals it. And let's just let him show us what's really his heart. And let's let God release us into the liberty that belongs to the children of God. And then let's turn around and say, now that I'm free, I want to serve you forever. So show me, Lord. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Send me and I will go. Lord, thank you for being here. I pray you would speak to every heart as we have need. Guide us in your way. But Lord, we want to be holy as you are holy. We want our lives to be on the altar. We want to consider nothing so precious that we wouldn't lay it down. And we trust you. Lord, we just want to, by faith, acknowledge we trust you to give back to us everything that's good. And I pray, Lord, that you would purify us even as you are pure and even that we would purify ourselves. And I ask, Lord, that the glory of God would fill our lives and that we would be free to be the church in this world that we live with great power because our lives are yours fully. Have your way, we ask in Jesus' name.